tonight's topic is going to be uh, looking at the history and the development of the Oral Torah in its written form. Uh, we spent the previous couple of sessions talking about the Oral Torah when indeed it was in its oral form, in its original form, the form that Moses got it, and then Moses gave it, and successive generations each perpetuated it to their community, to their people, and on to the next generation. Uh, and then something changed about the, the, you know, the second century of the Common Era, where a decision was made to change the entire model of Jewish life wherein we no longer are going to rely solely on an oral transmission of the Torah. Rather, a monumental effort is going to be undertaken to write it all down. And to write it all down in a final and authoritative text that is going to be final. That's not good. That's, that, that, that all future scholarship is going to have to fit within that text. Was there an event Yes, it was. It was. It was an event, but it was. It was multiple events. So the question, the major question, is why? Now the Talmud makes it clear. Halacha is the verse says that there is a prohibition against doing what was done. Oral Torah. We gave ten reasons in previous lectures why the oral Torah had to be maintained in its oral form and could not be written down. That's the way the Almighty wanted it. But, Raman describes this as an amputation. Like, imagine you have a, a patient that has gangrene on their leg. So you know that you have two options. Either you let them die or you amputate the leg. What kind of doctor cuts off a functioning limb on a, on, on a patient? Well, the answer is, is that sometimes, in order to save the totality of a person, you have to cut off part of that person. Similarly, to save the totality of the nation, you have to transgress one law. An example of this, uh, the Talmud tells us that if you know that there is a person in danger on Shabbos, building collapses, God forbid, there's people in there, maybe there are people in there, maybe yes, maybe no. Now the Allah is you cannot clear away debris on Shabbos. But, says the Talmud, one of the reasons the Talmud brings in the book of Yoma, it's better to desecrate one Shabbos in order to be able to fulfill multiple Shabbos. Similarly, the architects of the Mishnah, which is the first time the Oral Torah was written, they made a calculation, it's better to destroy, to transgress one law of the Torah so you can maintain the entirety of the Torah. Says the Rambam, what happened, what events or what trends in history transpired that uh, mandated that the Oral Torah must be written down in a finalized form? So the Rambam gives us four different reasons. We know historically, if you look at the progression of time, so Second Temple era, the Jewish people already splintered. There's half the people living in Babylon, half the people living in Israel. Throughout the Second Temple era, things go south in the form of corruption in the high priesthood office, uh, kings that are illegitimate, illegitimate kings. You have foreign rulers, rulers in the form of the Greeks, uh, of course, the Romans as well. And you have a lot of challenges that affect the nation. But the Raman boils it down uh, to four different reasons. I'm going to read to you what he says. This is from his introduction to his book, Mishnah Torah, and we'll get to how this fits in how Mishnah Torah fits into this discussion as well. And why did Rabbi Judah the Prince decide to write down the Mishnah? Why did he change a good thing, right? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Because he saw that the students were becoming fewer and fewer. The first reason why the Torah was in jeopardy is because there were less and less students every successive year. Uh, the nation was under tremendous uh, threats, from within and from without, and people were not dedicating as much of their time to Torah study. Number one, calamities were continually happening all the time. If you look at just that history, that, that, you know, that, that, uh, that century in history, you have episodes, multiple episodes of attempted genocide of the Jewish people. 
you have Hadrian and Trajan, two of the great villains in Jewish history, that each one of them independently tried to totally dismantle the Jewish nation. You have uh, Hadrian making rules, uh, uh, forbidding observance of Shabbos and Miss Mila and Kosher, etc. Nida, all these laws, he says, if anyone, he made a rule. He says, if, if, if any child, Jewish child gets circumcised, the child gets executed and the mother gets executed. What they would do is they would take the child, wrap it around the mom, and chuck them both off a cliff. Now, those obviously are very you know, difficult conditions to perpetuate Torah in the scale that was done prior. Um, of course, like and those things were happening everywhere they were turning. Continues the Rambam. Wicked governments were extending its domain and increasing its power. Whenever it's referring to wicked governments, primarily it's referring to the Romans. The Romans were tightening the noose on their subjects. This is at the peak of Roman power, and they turned their attention to the Jewish people, made their life very difficult. And lastly, of course, the Jews were wandering and reaching to the remote places. You have this explosion of Jewish emigration out of Israel, Whereas prior you had two major Jewish communities, now you're going to have tens if not hundreds of smaller little Jewish communities throughout the world. Those conditions are ripe for the unthinkable. The unthinkable is the Jewish people becoming disconnected from Torah. The nation becomes disconnected from Torah. You know what happens to the world? The world is doomed. Not only that, of course, our nation is doomed as well. So, those conditions led Rabbi Judah the Prince to make a decision that has saved the Jewish nation and as a byproduct of that, actually saved the world. Because we believe without the, the world is accepted with Torah, from Torah, it's not only us that suffers, it's everyone that suffers. And he decided, in spite of the transgression against writing down the oral Torah, he was going to do it. And he was uniquely situated, unique personality that was capable of doing it. He was, on one hand, a direct descendant of King David. He was the fabulous Torah scholar of his time. A man of tremendous character and piety. Just a, 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 someone of, of character that is almost hyperbolic when we read about it. Someone who was inordinately wealthy, personally, individually wealthy. Someone who was connected to the Roman leadership at the time. In fact... Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, one of the great Roman emperors, uh, was a, a personal friend of Rabbi Judah the Prince. They would actually study Torah together. So the climate was ripe, and the personality was the appropriate personality to actually change everything. And he, over a period of several decades, commissioned the tremendous, the most impressive undertaking of its time, oh, maybe of all of history, maybe since Ezra, who knows, where they gathered all of Torah in a, in, in a way that is mind-boggling, exhaustive beyond belief, organized it into 63 books, wrote it down with such precision that two lines of Mishnah really incorporate within them 10 pages of Talmud, which incorporate within like 500 books. Just amazing how they managed to write so much in such a consolidated form. No, that's the Talmud. Talmud's later on. We're talking about the Mishnah now. The Mishnah. We only have one version of Mishnah. Okay. So we see a just tremendous confluence of an individual with tremendous personal and political capabilities and a, a, a little bit of a, of, of a lull in Roman persecution because... Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, in fact, there's a tradition that he actually converted to Judaism. He was righteous and he was a friend of Rabbi Judah the Prince. Uh, and this time period really shaped the world that we know today because the transition from an oral Torah that was maintained in its oral format to an oral Torah that was written down just changed everything. Suddenly, you know, you have a book and you have all of Torah. It's not so, we don't know so much about the process that, 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 that uh, went into writing it down, but the numbers given between maybe 20, 20 years, 20 to 30 years. Rabbi Judah the Prince, of course, he was at the helm <coughs> of that decision and of that 
operation, but he had the whole Sanhedrin with him, and you know, this is only 50 years after Rabbi Ativa, so Rabbi Ativa, the towering influence that uh, is the most impressive uh, uh, position in the Talmud, in, in the Mishnah. Like, uh, he was obviously working upon a framework that was already pre-existing, uh, and he had a lot of help, but he's the main guy uh, who made the decision, made those shots, and, and, and really saved the Jewish nation. Now, is this the same Marcus Aurelius that was supposed to be the great emperor of Rome, the most humane? Yes, yes, same guy. Same guy. Uh, 161 is when he assumed emperorship. Uh, 161, I think, till 180 or 181, 20 years, something like that. <sighs> yes, yes. Tolerant of everybody. That yeah. In fact, if you actually look at Rashi in the beginning of Toldos, Toldos is the sixth portion in Genesis, uh, that talks about the birth, well, first the gestation of, Isaac, of, of Jacob and Esau. So Rebecca is pregnant, she has twins, and she's freaking out. She goes to get advice. And what's the advice that she hears? Shnei goyim bevitnech. There's two nations in your stomach. And if you actually look at the way this is spelled, it's spelled shnei geim, which means two proud ones are in your stomach. Says Rashi, who are these two people? Of course, it's Jacob and Esau, as we know. But who is the personification of Jacob? Who's the, the peak, the paragon of what Jacob represents? And the positive side of Esau? Says Rashi, Zerebi v'Antoninus. This refers to Rebbe, Rabbi Judah the Prince, and Antoninus. Antoninus was a Gentile, of course, but he was someone who all that was good about Esau, all of Esau's potential, what he could have been, was found in the personality of Antoninus. In fact, the Talmud in the book of Sanhedrin on page 91 records a very fascinating interaction that they that these two people had. They have these tremendously deep philosophical debates. I'll give you an example just to whet your appetite. Antoninus asked Rebbe the following question. Body and soul can each exonerate themselves. How so? Someone dies. We believe one of the f- foundational principles of our religion is that after someone dies, they have to give an accounting and a reckoning for their behavior. You did mitzvahs, you have to stand by your behavior, and certainly if you did averot, if you did sins, you have to explain why you did what you did. In the hereafter. In the hereafter, that's right. Says Antoninus, I have a loophole. He asked Rabbi, I have a loophole. Why? The body will say, the soul sinned. Why? Because ever since the soul left me, I'm sitting here like a rock. I can't do any sin. It must be the soul that sinned. And the soul will say, the body sinned. Because ever since I've separated from the body, I've been floating around like a, like a bird. So neither one of them can be convicted. Because each one of them has said the other one sinned. Question, Antoninus asked Good question. How does Rebbe respond? Rebbe, by the way, named Rebbe, Rebbe Judah the Prince, and Rebbe Nekrosh, it's all the same guy. Rabbi Yudha Nasi is called, he's also called Rebbe. Why is he called Rebbe? Because Rebbe means teacher. And he's the teacher of all of Israel because of what he did. So Antoninus asked Rebbe a good question. What, what are you going to do, right? It's a good argument. So he says like this. I'll give you a parable, an analogy. Imagine you have a king. And the king has a beautiful orchard. And he hires two guards to make sure that nothing happens to the orchard. He hires one guard is lame, and one guard is blind. And he says to them, you two guys, you're responsible to make sure no one partakes in the fruits, save it for me. He plops the two guards down, and he leaves. So the lame guard is sitting there, he's on the floor, he can't walk. And he tells the blind, but functioning, but someone's able to walk, guard, he says, you know what I see? I see these beautiful, delicious, delectable fruits. I have an idea. Why don't you give me a piggyback ride? And you can walk, and I can see, and together, 
will navigate and get all the fruits. So the blind guy says, great idea. And he gives them pity back right. He's like, ah, make a left, make a right. And finally they get there and they just eat all the fruits. And the orchard is bare. They go back to their city, there's their posts, and they separate, right? So the king comes and says, what happened? Hard you guards. Why don't you do your mission? Why why don't you watch the orchard, like I said? So the lame guy, the lame guard says, me? I didn't do it. I'm lame. How could I possibly have gone and eaten your fruits? And the blind guy says, how could I? I'm blind. How am I supposed to do it? You know what the king did? The king took the lame guard, put him back on a piggyback ride, and judged them as if they were one person. So too says Rabbi Judah the prince, the Almighty is going to take the soul, throw it back into the body, and judge us as if we're one person. We can't take ourselves and split ourselves into two. We can't. We're one. We sin as one, and we're going to have to answer for our sins as one as well. But that's the conversation they had. And the Talmud gives a whole list of all these conversations that they had. Uh, for example, when does someone get a Yetzirah? At what point in their development? When does someone get a soul? All these very interesting questions that uh, Antoninus, if the Talmud, by the way, quotes Antoninus, it means that it views him very, very highly. Not only that, the Talmud has such reverence for Antoninus that it even records a debate that Rebbe and Antoninus had, and they argued, and Rebbe agreed that Antoninus was right and he was wrong, and he changed his opinion, which is the ultimate compliment. Right? Rebbe Judah, the prince, you, you're able to argue with him, and not only that, you're able to convince him, obviously you are a very, very special person. So the writing of the Mishnah is an example of, it's a clear example of the mighty intervening to making sure that it's possible for the Jewish nation to sustain itself. Because if this event didn't happen, we would not be sitting here in this room today. There's no way. There's no way. Now, the Mishnah. So we said it's 63 books that incorporate all of Jewish law. However, if you read a Mishnah, you will invariably notice that a lot of the information of Jewish life is actually missing. This is something we see a pattern in the writing down of the oral Torah. This pattern repeats itself. Even though Rabbi Judah the Prince made a decision, a decision that sustained the nation thenceforth, a decision to write down the oral Torah, still he only wrote down the oral Torah as much as it was necessary to write down to save the nation from forgetting the Torah. But there were still vast amounts of oral Torah that were left in their oral form. So when we talk about writing down the oral Torah, it's actually a process that Rabbi Judah, began, Rabbi Judah the Prince began at the end of the second century, but still has not ended. We're still in the process of, take, of, of studying oral Torah. He just started with writing down the Mishnah. He wrote down the Mishnah. What did he left what did he leave unwritten? The Talmud. Like you mentioned, Dave, the Talmud doesn't appear for several hundred years afterwards. Now, what is the Talmud? The Talmud is a sister work to the Mishnah. You can't read one without the other. You can't understand one without the other. Why? Because the Mishnah gives you just the laws. Just the laws of law school. Just like, it's almost as if the Mishnah is just the heading. Is this the Mishnah that we read? Oh, yeah. No, that's Pirkei Avot. But Pirkei Avot is one book of the 63 books of the Mishnah. But Mish, Mishnah is the book of Jewish law. But it's just, it's almost, it's, it's just the names of the law. No details. Not only that, there's no explanations, there's no sources, there's no examples, there's no exceptions, there's no applications, nothing. It's just the bare bones. It's almost as if Rabbi Judah the Prince recognized the importance of having an oral Torah and maintaining an oral Torah. But, for reasons of necessity, he, it had to be written down. But he only wrote down a little bit. It's a little bit. It's still 63 books. But in every law, he gave you just the bare bones of the law. And everything else was still maintained oral until it was written down hundreds of years later in the form of the Talmud, etc. So what was written down? The Talmud was written down. 
You know what else was, wasn't written down? This is a term we hear a lot, a term that's a little bit, um, a term that's a little bit um, confusing what it actually means. Halacha. What is halacha? Halacha is laws, that's right, but halacha is always practical law. What to do. If you study Mishnah, you'll get very, very, very little halacha. Because Mishnah, remember, it's the heading. It's just the bare bones. It says, make a sukkah on, on sukkahs. You know, and some details about the law. You know, what it, but how and where and what and all those things are, you know, well, some stuff, of course, are touched. But the vast majority of the actual details are in the Talmud. Now, halacha is even a step beyond Talmud. Halacha is taking all of Talmud and getting to practical. What do I do as a Jew? Not only that, there was a part of Torah, of oral Torah, that was actually never written down, and that's called Torah's Nistar. Torah's Nistar is the hidden Torah, which we call loosely Kabbalah today. Kabbalah was never written down. Still hasn't been written down. It's still part of the oral Torah, and of course, Rabbi Drew the Prince maintained it in its oral form. Yes, the Zohar was written down, but reading the Zohar doesn't mean you understand what you're talking about. That's not, this is, you know, you could read the Zohar, but you might as well be reading Mandarin Chinese if you don't know actually what it actually, you know, understand the language, understanding the nuance, the subtleties of what's going on. I want to show you guys something cool, a little bit of an application of this. Uh, of what it means to write down the Mishnah in a way that still ensures that the bulk of learning will be in its pure oral form. So, for example, if you open up any page of Talmud, so Talmud is the explanation of the Mishnah, right? Open up any page of Talmud, uh, you'll be analyzing a Mishnah. Very often, they'll ask questions of the Mishnah that they won't have answers to. And a frequent answer to such questions is what's called chesure mechsira v'hachi katani, which means literally, translation means, the Mishnah is missing words and this is what it really should say. It's as if the Talmud is amending the text of the Mishnah. The problem is you cannot change the Mishnah. Once the Mishnah is finalized, it's finalized. That's it. The Talmud can never disagree with the Mishnah. It has to work within the framework of the Mishnah. So how is the Talmud coming along and saying, ah, this problematic Mishnah, you know what we're going to do? We're actually going to amend the text. We're saying, well, this word, we'll move to the side, we'll add words, we'll subtract words. What's going on over here? So the answers are like this. Incredible, think about this idea. Rabbi Judah the Prince specifically, deliberately chose to write a Mishnah in a way that the only way to answer it would be to amend the text. All that was part of his calculation. He wanted people to study the Mishnah. He didn't want to just spell it out. He wanted it to be also a matter of study. So he wrote things in a way that guaranteed that people will have questions and guaranteed that they'll have to realize that what it says is something else. And therefore, the oral Torah flavor of working hard to try to understand, of having a tradition of a teacher to a student, the Mishnah really means like this. Right? The oral format of studying that was present beforehand will be maintained and perpetuated even after the Mishnah. Pretty incredible idea. And of course, as we'll see this again and again, it's, an act, it's, an, it's, it's genius that's unparalleled. To write a collection of books so complete, not lacking any part of Torah, uh, that is able to incorporate everything, yet to write it in a way that's simultaneously clear and unclear. It's clear because if you study it hard, you'll get it. And if you have the oral tradition, you'll get it. But if you don't, it's not clear. Unbelievable uh, achievement. And of course, that's why when we look back in Jewish history at, at the people who arrived at an era, at a point in time in history, where the future of the nation was in jeopardy, one of the people that we look at 
uh, with most admiration is Rabbi Judah the Prince because he came at a time where the nation was at a crossroads. The temple's been destroyed. The Sanhedrin is floundering. It's you know, being forced to go either underground or to be constantly moving from place to place. The people are splintered. They, uh, there's tremendous uh, political, of course, religious threats that are emerging and intensifying. And he is able to navigate the nation through this. And the fact that we are a vibrant nation today is testament to his, his foresight and his vision. You know, of course, he's not the only one. We have Ezra, of course, Moshe, Joshua, Rabbi Akiva, of course. But uh, on, on very near the top of that list is Rabbi Judah the Prince. So the mission has been written down. What about the Talmud? So the Ramam continues here, the subject matter of the two Talmuds is the interpretation of the text of the Mishnah and explanation of its depths and matters that developed in the various courts from the time of our holy teacher until the writing of the Talmud. It would be, anything that we try to say about the Talmud would be an understatement. Like, the scope of the Talmud is unprecedented. The intricacies of a single page of Talmud. You, you, you can have people with PhDs in physics and they are hamstrung when they reach a page of Talmud. It's so complex. It's so dense. A single page, a half page, can take you a week to just understand it. With one word, it's asking questions and it's and keeping track of just amazing calculations you have to have to just make your way through a simple page of, of Talmud, yeah. much less trying to get to the depths of the Talmud. function of the way it's written, the function of, I mean, it, it, is it just not put forth in a clear manner? Oh, it's exceedingly it's clear. Is that mind uh, it's, it's, that? Well, it's exceedingly clear. That's the thing. It's written so clearly, but it's written very tersely, very precisely. And also, its, it's, it's, uh, it's argumentation is so sharp. So it's not, a, it's, not, it's, not, it's not that it's not clear. It's not that it's written haphazardly. It's written very clearly, but very precisely, in a way that with one or two words, it's going to say exactly what it means, but you might not get it because you're used to having things fleshed out for you, right? That's what that, by the way, you know who does that more than anyone else? Rashi. Right? Rashi takes the Talmud and adds in all those other words between the, between the, the pauses of between each word. It fills in the blanks because if you didn't have Rashi... It's, you know, just the, the way it's written is so precise that it's asking questions and answering questions you don't even get it. You're, you're, you're totally lost. But it's lost not because it is lacking, but rather because the reader is lacking. It, 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 incredible, like, what it, what, what it does. But not only that, I think in uh, continuing this theme, that the Talmud... Was, was, it was written for the same reasons the Mishnah was written. It was once again, the Talmud, let's say there's two Talmuds. Uh, the, the first Talmud was called the Jerusalem Talmud. Uh, it was written primarily uh, by Rabbi Yochanan, but uh, it was written in northern Israel. It's called Jerusalem Talmud because it was written in Israel, not because it was written in Jerusalem. Uh, but it was Rabbi Yochanan along with uh, others as well. Um, now, it didn't really take off the Jerusalem Talmud, because, for a few reasons. First of all, um, it, it was written almost as a, in a matter-of-fact in, in matter manner, as opposed to a dialogue manner. It was much harder to study. Uh, also, the, the Jerusalem Talmud does not incorporate the opinions of uh, dissenters. So if you have a disagreement in the Talmud, when we say Talmud, typically we mean Babylonian Talmud, if you have a disagreement, it will always try to flesh out all opinions. Even opinions that it ultimately concludes are wrong. So you have an argument, two sages have an argument, a discussion, and they argue back and forth the whole page, and finally the Talmud concludes, we're going to go with this one and not with that one. Couldn't you have told me that a page earlier and saved me that hassle? No. Because you're not being saved hassle, you're being saved Torah study, which is something we don't want to do. We want you to study, to, to study Torah. It's much more lively, much more engaging. 
um, way of studying. But also, lastly, the, the Babylonian Talmud came later. It came 150 years later, and therefore it has much more content in it. We, we previously agreed that the Torah is the Word of God. Yes. Uh, and that's what the text is. It's, yes. Now, we're not talking, are we, are we still talking about the Word of God? Absolutely. Are we talking about interpretation? No, this, this, that's the whole thing. This is all unpacking what Moses gave us. Moses gave us Mishnah. He gave us law. Moses gave us Talmud. He gave us reasonings for law and, and exceptions and examples and limitations and connecting it back to the verses. A big thing what the Talmud does, the Talmud really, op- it's mind-boggling and eye-opening how the Talmud is, one of the functions of the Talmud is linking oral Torah with written Torah. So this, this, this world that the Torah creates for us, wherein we have the Torah given to us twice, once in an oral Torah format, where everything is kind of spelled out, and one's in a written Torah format, where it's all encrypted. Well, who connects the dots? How do we see how these two connect? The Talmud does it. But it's not the Talmud invented it. The Talmud just wrote down that the Moshe gave us, and gave to Joshua, and Joshua to the elders, and the elders to the prophets, and the prophets to the men of the great assembly, and the, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that was written down in parts. Mishnah, written down by Rabbi Judah the Prince. Talmud written down by Rabbi Yochanan, Ravina, Ravashi, the, uh, the, the architects of the Talmud. And by the way, you know what else Moshe gave us? Halacha. Actual practical halacha. And you know where halacha was not written down? In the Talmud. And you know who did that? For example, the Ramah. We'll see how we're jumping stages a little bit. But this is all trying to unpack, uh, trying to unbundle what Moshe gave Moshe gave us oral Torah. He gave us Mishnah, Talmud, Halacha, everything, right? Okay, comes along Rabbi Judah the Prince. He says, I'll, I will t- take, take, undertake the mission of writing down all of Mishnah. Beginning, basics. What's the structure of the Jewish law? Hundred, a couple hundred years later, they say, okay, well, now we're going to write down the Gemara, the Talmud, which is the elaboration of all those laws, all the examples of those laws, all the exceptions of those laws, and, by the way, connecting every law back to its source in the, in, in the Torah, in the written Torah. A couple hundred years later, we see an entire era of scholars trying to do halacha, which is the next step of oral Torah. Most famously, the Rambam. But none of them are trying to write their own stuff. Of course, their, their own stuff fits into this, and that's something we mentioned previously, how like rabbinic law, for example, is stuff that were added, uh, new laws that were deduced with the 13 methods of derivation. Of course, but the core content of the oral Torah is all coming back from Moses. Moses from God. It was oral, it was written down in stages. Mishnah, Rabbi Judah the Prince, Talmud, by the uh, Rabbi Yochanan and Ravina Ravashi, Babylonian and Jerusalem Talmuds, Halacha, by the Rambam, by the Rosh, by the Tur, by the Shulchan Aruch, and continue on to this day. And certain parts of it, like we said, are still not written, like the hidden, hidden Torah as well. Does that answer your question, Jay? So, is this halacha, is an ongoing... Yeah, so we'll get to halacha, we'll get to halacha in a little bit. I want to kind of dwell a little bit on the Talmud itself as well. So first of all, halacha... It's a little bit unclear because it's a little bit different than Mishnah. Just like the Mishnah was written with the bare minimum of the oral Torah being written down, Talmud also, they tried to, they wrote on Talmud and they also kind of wrote down Halacha, but they didn't write it in a way that was user-friendly. How so? If you read every single word of Talmud and you memorize it, and you understand everything, you'll actually know halacha from it as well. But, that's not very user-friendly. If you want to just know how to behave as a Jew, theoretically it's all in the Talmud. But it's not organized in a way, do this, do this, do this. It's, or, it, it's, it's, in, the, you know, it's in the complexity of the Talmud is halacha. It's all there. But deliberately, when they wrote down the Talmud, they said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to actually write halacha as well. But we're going to write it in, the way, in a way that unless you study so much your whole life, you won't actually get it. 
This is again the same theme, where you're writing down the oral Torah, but you're still ensuring that people will have to study in order to know. In order to get it. I'll give you guys another example here. I, I, I've said this example before, I say it again, just on this particular point. Imagine you had an encyclopedia of halacha. Everything. But, it's not alphabeticized. Not only that, every entry is actually cut into four different parts and scattered throughout the whole thing. And lastly, it's written in a foreign language. Does it have all of halacha in it? Yeah, it's an encyclopedia of halacha. It has it all. But, to actually know it, you have to understand the language. You have to understand how the Talmud writes it. You have to know all of Talmud, because you have to know it all, because there's no way to decide where, where, you know, where you get it from. And you have to know it well enough to realize that, well, this particular aspect of halacha is actually found in four different places in the Talmud. Collect those four, decipher them, and understand halacha. It's all there, yeah. But who actually can do it? A few individuals. And that is by design. Because when they wrote down the Talmud, they said, we don't want halacha to be spelled out. We want the oral Torah flavor to be maintained. People have to work hard, have to study, have to go to the teacher. All that has to be maintained. But it's still there preserved. And it's still written in an oral format. So they, they managed to write down the oral Torah, but still write down the oral Torah, that it's still not possible to do it unless you have a teacher. Incredible what they, what they actually did. And I want to give you guys another example of this. Agadita. What's Agadita? The term. Agadita is a term for parts of the Talmud that are either philosophical in nature or ethics or theological. Basically, any part of the Talmud of Jewish life that's not actually practical. What do I do? What do I believe? How do I behave? Etc. If you are reading a page of Talmud and the Talmud shifts from practical, so to speak, how I, you know, how I live, versus to ethical or philosophical, it's almost like you're in different worlds. It's like suddenly you're dropped onto Mars. Why? While you may be used to reading Talmud and saying, this rabbi said that, that rabbi said that, they proved that, argued that, this, that, suddenly it's like, well, there was a person they did something very bizarre. And they had this, and they heard that, and they experienced this, and they saw that. All metaphors and stories and parables and strange statements. And like, whoa, what did I suddenly walk walk into? It's like, it's different worlds. And the answer is, the Ramah even tells us this, that they when they wanted to write down the Talmud, they wanted to write even the secrets of Judaism, secrets, even the deep ideas of Judaism. What do we believe? Very, very intense, intense questions. How do we behave? What's Olam Abba? It's the example. What is Olam Abba? It's a great mystery, right? But they wanted, they wanted it's still part of Torah, right? How, let's write that. But we only want someone who's a real Torah scholar to understand it. So they wrote these things down in a way that the literal understanding of the Talmud, of the Agadita part of the Talmud, totally doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. And most people, the people that aren't scholars, will say, oh, okay, this is saying something strange. Uh, this must have not been edited. And they'll move on. And they'll miss it. And that's good. We, don't, we want them to miss it. We don't want those people to you know, have all the secrets. We want them to work on it. And the... the, the uh, the great scholars, the ones that really work hard, and you know, they were able to understand it. To dedicate yourself to it, you'll, you'll get it as well. Go ahead. Good question. Well, how do people like us? How do we? How do we even know when we read the Talmud because we're not Torah scholars, except maybe for Ed, the rest of us. Well, but. I'll give you, I'll give you an, an answer to your question. The answer to your question, I think, is, is that even us, simple people, well, you're not, you know Torah. whatever, you're not, you're, 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 I'm including myself in simple people, okay? 
you read a section of Agarata. It's totally written in foreign language. It's all parables, stories, making strange connections, obvious questions that aren't addressed. We could still spend six months with that. Why can't we spend six months with that? We still have time. If you spend six months with an idea, you'll probably get it too. You, as in all of us. Okay, so maybe we're not going to be, we're not going to get it all, but we can get something. And whatever we get is true. I have some examples of this, by the way. To, to expand on what David said, I mean, the average Jew is supposed to know the law, supposed to know yes. what to do. How is he supposed to know if he can't just read it and understand? That's, that, that's where the Rambam comes up. And you're right, the Rambam says, the Rambam says, when he writes his book, he says, exactly why I wrote this book. is because the, the Talmud was written in a way that only the great scholars can actually access halacha out of that book. And that was a problem because there weren't enough scholars even a thousand years ago, certainly not today. I want to give, give you guys two examples of Agadita. Two examples of Talmudic statements that on the surface seem very strange. And only if we really work hard can we understand them. And someone else worked hard so we can understand them. This is actually two of them. and it's, Both of them say the same idea. The first one is talking about Joshua. When Moses went, goes up to heaven, he goes up the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. What does Joshua do? So we know the entire nation goes back to the camp. Right? What does Joshua do? He waits for him at a, at a lower level. So Joshua waits for him at the mountain. Moshe goes up the mountain. Everyone else goes back to the camp to wait for Moshe. Joshua says, I'm waiting right here at the mountain, foot of the mountain. Okay. Fine. It seems that Joshua didn't want to miss a second. So you know what? Moshe comes down. I'm going to be there. Also, Joshua doesn't want to be leaving. doesn't want to leave Moshe. Fine. Hold that thought for a second. Now, in the camp, what were the Jews eating at that time? Mana, that's right. So the mana falls in the camp, and they're eating. Joshua is outside of the camp. What was he eating? The Talmud says something very strange. When Joshua was at the foot of the mountain, waiting for Moshe, he also got manna. But he got manna, the equivalent of the entire nation. If the entire nation got 500,000 barrels or pounds of manna every day, he got the same amount for himself. That's what the Talmud says. Period of the story. That's, that's, you're exactly right. Like, clearly there's some sort of lesson here that's being obscured. What's the lesson? Of course, why is he waiting? There's a lot of, lot of questions, but that's all it says. And there's some sort of lesson there that, 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 that's, that's going to be, that's, that needs to be unlocked. Mm-hmm. I want to take you to another Talmud. You have an idea? Yeah, I was just saying maybe Hashem was preparing him to, to show him that I am with you because you're going to lead the people. So out. give him manna. Why does he have, have to have... between the people from Moshe to him to the people. But why does he have to have so much? Okay. Give him... He will need such more... Um, faith and stuff to continue because he'll have a hard time having to do with the whole but when he went but when he went back when he went back after Moshe came down Joshua doesn't become the leader for for another 40 years Uh he went back do you think he still got that amount? no he probably got the same amount as everyone else Mm -hmm. only when he's separate from the nation does he get tons and tons of manna more than he could possibly ever imagine to eat it seems a strange idea no, he chose, yeah. Is it just like a metaphor? I mean, did that really happen, though, that he would get the same... That's what it says. Well, you know, we're not so, we're not so eager to say that it's, 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 meta, it's a metaphor. Well... Ah, maybe, but that... See, that's the thing. We sometimes they're, they're metaphoric, and sometimes they're literal. This is literal, what happened. Literal. This is literal. But the lesson is, is, is a little bit obscured. Sometimes it's obviously a metaphor. 
and then the lesson is even more difficult to understand. So let me explain to you what this Tom was actually saying. The nation that left Egypt, they had a special merit that they got manna from heaven to feed themselves. What if there was one guy in the nation? This guy wasn't so meritorious. Did he get manna or not? Everyone got manna. Why? The answer is like this. There's this idea called a collective. A unity. The Jewish people were a nation. The nation is not just the collective sum of its parts. The nation is something, an entity on its own. And this nation was a meritorious nation. And this nation got manna. This nation, they're at Mount Sinai. Moshe goes up, Ten Commandments. Where does the nation go? The nation goes back to the camp. There's one person in the nation that says, I am not joining the nation going back to camp. I'm staying right here. And that's Joshua. Joshua, in effect, separated himself from the nation. So Joshua is not, now not part of the nation as a collective. He's an individual. So when he gets manna, or if he gets manna, it's not going to be because he's part of the nation. It's going to be because he's an individual. Oh, now we're treating him as an individual? What does Joshua on his own merit deserve to get? As much manna as you could possibly imagine. I want to add a little further. The Talmud tells us that Joshua got as much manna as the entire nation as a whole. Now we're told that Moshe was equal to the entire nation. Now what that means is a good question. Moshe was equal to the entire nation. Joshua was a worthy successor of Moshe. Perhaps when we're told that Moshe was equal to the nation, Moshe the individual was equal to the nation as a whole. Maybe Joshua was like Moshe. Joshua also had some power, personal power, that was equal to the nation. So therefore, Joshua, in his own merit, he got just the manna he deserved. And you know how much manna that was? The same thing that the nation got. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, there's, a, there's ideas here, like, where'd that come? That's in the Talmud. It's there, but it's hidden. And there's another idea. This idea, it happens to be a few pages away, and it's, you'll see when I'll say this idea, I'll say the words of the Talmud, you'll say, that does not make sense. But then you'll say, oh, yeah, it actually does make a lot of sense. Someone who sees a seminal omission on Yom Kippur. Says the Talmud. That person is probably going to die that year. He should be worried the entire year he's probably going to die. But... If he manages to survive the whole year, he should know that he is a righteous person who is worthy of Olam Haba. What? <laughs> that is a statement in Talmud, in the book of Yoma, on page 88a. You read that Talmud, you're like, ooh, this wasn't edited. But what's actually being told is like this. Yom Kippur. Kippur is a day where the entire nation is doing one thing, and that is they are afflicting themselves. You have to afflict yourself. What are the afflictions? Well, we can eat, we can drink, we don't wear certain kinds of shoes, we don't engage in sexual relations, we refrain from pleasure. And then there's one guy who has a seminal omission on Yom Kippur. What he is essentially saying is, I'm going to behave in a way that's different from the entire nation. Everyone's behaving this way, I'm going to behave differently. Ooh, okay. So you want to be different than the nation. Okay, well, you're judged on your own merit. If we on Yom Kippur are part of a collective, a part of the Jewish nation, well, maybe individually we wouldn't be meritorious, we wouldn't merit 
a successful acquittal in judgment, because we're part of, you know, we're, personally we're not that great, but we could join the Jewish nation. Let us be judged with the entire nation, and then we'll be spared. This guy is saying, I don't want to be part of the entire nation. Oh, you don't want to be part of the nation? You're judged as an individual. You're judged as an individual, you're probably going to die. But if you didn't die, you should know you're, you're righteous. Why? Because you obviously are able to stand on your own two feet and be judged, and you're able to make it through. Now, this comment makes abundance of sense. Right? Now it makes sense. If you see uh, you're probably going to die, but if you didn't, then you're meritorious. If you separate yourself from the Jewish nation, you probably won't withstand judgment. But if you do, it means you're righteous. But of course, it's written in a way that's encrypted. And this, there's thousands of examples like this in the Talmud. Amazing how they were able to capture all of halacha, they were able to connect all of oral Torah back to written Torah, they were able to write it all down in a tremendously precise way, and they were able to give over tremendously deep and profound ideas in a way that unless you work hard, you'll never understand it. But there's a problem, uh, like Ed said. The problem is, is that for simple people, and even simple people that lived a thousand years ago, which are more sophisticated than we are, if you want to actually know how to behave as a Jew, you want to know halacha, unless you're an actual scholar that knew everything, there, it was impossible. You have to know all Talmud. You have to, you have to know the foreign language. You have to be able to decipher it. You have to be an expert. It's pretty, pretty incredible. Not only that, of course, things got worse. You know, the Jewish people became more scattered throughout the nations. There was more struggle. There was more <coughs> uh, crusades and exp- uh, expulsions and inquisitions and lots of terrible things and blood libel, really bad stuff, bad conditions. And of course, as a result of that, the study of Torah declined. And if the only way to get halacha is from the Talmud and the oral Torah study that it enables, it became very difficult. So yes, there were some individuals, few people in every town that knew halacha, uh, who studied Torah all the time, understood the Talmud, understood the sages. But, of course, that number was becoming fewer and fewer. I want to read you a quote here. This is the Ramam in his introduction to his book. Because the Ramam is the first one to really go out and say, this is what I'm doing. I am going to take the responsibility to take on the next stage of oral Torah. I'm going to read it to you. It's a little bit of a long quote, but you, you guys can handle it. It's not, not that long. <coughs> the people of... Was that an un- unintended consequence to... Uh for it to be accessible to only 2%? No, well, that's right. It was unintended because it was by design initially because they wanted people to work hard to get the halacha. But when people weren't able to work hard or were unwilling to work hard, well, then they had to make it easier for them. So yeah, let me read you what the Ramam says here. The people of Israel were scattered throughout all the nations, most exceedingly, and reached the most remote parts and distant islands, and armed struggle became prevalent in the world, and the public, public ways became clogged with armies. It became very hard to travel. So you wanted to go study with a teacher? You couldn't. You were stuck in your little town. The study of Torah declined, and the people of Israel ceased to gather in places of study in their thousands and myriads as they had before. Rather, they gathered together a few individuals, the remnant whom the Lord calls in each city and each town. It was just individuals. It wasn't the masses like it had been prior. And acted by themselves with, with the study of Torah, understood all the laws and the sages and knew them, and knew from them what the correct way of, of the law is. Only a few people were able to take all of Talmud and distill it in a way that they knew halacha. Continues the Rambam. In our time, severe troubles come one after another. All are in distress. The wisdom of our sages has disappeared, and the understanding of our discerning of men is hidden. Thus... The commentaries, the responses to the questions, the subtle laws of the Golem Rite, which once seemed clear, have in our times become hard to understand, so that only a few properly understand them. And one hardly needs mention the Talmud itself, the Babylonian Talmud, the Jerusalem Talmud, the Sephir, the Seftos, which all require a broad mind, a wise soul, and considerable time before one can correctly know from them what is forbidden or permitted and the other rules of the Torah. He's telling us the problem, which was a design. You had to have if you wanted to know halacha, 
You have to dedicate significant time. You have to be someone of expansive heart, someone who's really willing to immerse yourself in Torah, in Talmud, to get halacha. That, unfortunately, was beginning to uh, become fewer and fewer people. For this reason, says the Rambam, I, Moshe, son of Rabbi Maimon the Sephardi, which means from Spain, found that the current situation is unbearable, and so, relying on the help of the rock, blessed is he, the Almighty, I intently studied all these works. When the Rambam says that he intently studied something, you know, he did it masterfully. For I saw fit to write what can be determined from all these works in regard to what is forbidden and permitted and unclean and unclean and all the other rules of the Torah. The Rambam says, I'm going to do the work. I'm going to study all of Talmud in a way that is absolutely astonishing. All the Talmuds, Jerusalem Talmud, Babylonian Talmud, all the Mishnah, everything in, in, in a way of unfathomable depth. And I will write it down in a book, everything in clear style, so that the whole oral Torah would become thoroughly known to all. I will I'll cut through all the arguments, all the dialogue, all the discussion, and just give you the laws. Unbelievable. Without bringing problems and solutions and differences of view, rather clear, convincing and correct statements in accordance with the law drawn from all these words and commentaries that have appeared from the time of Rabbi Judah the Prince till this day. That I'm saying, I will take a thousand years of scholarship on the scales that have not yet, the world has never seen prior and has not seen since, and I will distill it all for you in a book which will have everything, all of oral Torah, in practical organized, clear, coherent fashion. <coughs> this is so, listen to this, that all the rules should be accessible to the small and to the great, in the rules of each and every commandment and in the rules of the legislation of the sages and prophets. In short, listen to this, guys. So that a person should need no other book in the world. In, in, the, in the rules or of any of the laws of Israel, but that this work would collect the entire oral Torah, including the positive legislations, the customs, negative legislations, and acts of the time of Moshe, from the time of Moshe until the writing of the Talmud, as the Gonim interpreted them. Thus, I have called this work Mishnah Torah, which means repeating of all of Torah. This is the, this is the clincher. For a person reads the written Torah first, and then reads this book and knows from it the entire oral Torah without needing to read any other book between them. But I'm saying, I will, I will get you straight to the chase. I'll write this book, which by the way is 14 books, okay, which organizes it in such clear and beautiful language. Language that his contemporaries wrote about him, he rivaled the Mishnah in precision of language all gather from, from all the corners of the Talmud. I will organize them by topic. Where you don't need to go and... One topic is scattered throughout the Talmud. How are you going to find it? I will do all that work for you. I will gather it, distill it, clearly written such beautiful language. You read the Ramam, it's just beautiful. The way he just organized it. So clear, everything's clear. And says the Ramam, this is going to be the last word of halacha. You just all you got to do is got you read, you read the written Torah, you read my book, and you have Mishnah, Talmud, Halacha, all in one. So why do people study Talmud? Well, first of all, some people do. But remember, why did the Rama write it? He wrote it so people should have access to Halacha, and he also wrote it. You don't need a Talmud for halacha, and he was successful in that. Now, of course, it's ironic that the Ramam intended to be the last book written on halacha, when in fact it was the first book written on halacha. Uh, and it spawned thousands and tens of thousands of books written either on the Ramam directly or on halacha in this. But he started this whole method of, of organizing halacha. In, 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 in you know, this way, taking all of Talmud and distilling it and organizing it in a way that is applicable and accessible to everyone. Uh, but when people study Talmud, they study to, study to study, not for halacha. If they want to study halacha properly, then they study 
the backstory, so to speak, of the Rambam. But you're right. It's, very, it's possible today to know halacha without going to Talmud. And that was not possible when the Rambam was around because there was nothing else. He was the first one that did that. And of course, he wasn't the first one. He wasn't the last one. Uh, the Rush, uh, who came afterwards, truth is he wasn't really the first, but he was the first one, certainly in such a radically different format. Uh, the tour, of course, the Shulchan Aruch, and the list continues with the Shulchan Aruch and all the commentaries of the Shulchan Aruch, all the commentaries in the Rambam, uh, all the... Well, the Shulchan Aruch is working now. The Rambam was not the only one who wrote Halacha. So... No, more than, much more than two. No, I mean, two sources. Well, yes, there's still halacha being written today. Because remember, the, the Rabbi Joseph Cairo never saw a refrigerator. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein for you and me. Um, but uh, yeah, of course, he was one of the titans of halacha of the past uh, hundred years. So that's interesting. So what Shulchan Aruch, what, what, what Rabbi Joseph Cairo did was he devised a very interest, interesting system of, of dealing with halacha. So the Rambam comes up to his halacha. Remember, the Rambam, well, how, how did he get there? It's not like he picked arbitrarily. He studied everything so intently that is beyond anything we could ever imagine. But he got to his halacha. But he has contemporaries that disagree with him. So the Rif, for example, Rabbi Alfasi, even though he preceded him, uh, but he some, they sometimes disagree. Not so often, but sometimes it happens. The Rush, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Asher, um, Rabbi Asher ben Yechiel, he was a, a German rabbi who actually moved to Spain. Uh, he was one of the great uh, halachic authorities. Did the same thing, wrote, wrote halacha on all of Talmud. Others as well. And sometimes the Ramam does not is not the last word in halacha. So what do you do? What do you do now? You do, do you just follow the Rambam? So there are there are communities that do that. By the way, the Yemenite community, they just follow the Rambam. Doesn't matter what anyone says. He is the uh, the official last word in halacha for the Yemenite community. That's it. But there are sometimes that the Rambam says something that he is uh, almost on his own. Right? Everyone else disagrees with him. So then it seems the, the consensus is not like him. So what do you do then? So then Rabbi Joseph Cairo decided where to go with, with every halacha. Now he, of course, he, he did the work himself. He didn't just start from the Rambam. He started from, from the Talmud, like really built it up from scratch, but then organized in a way that incorporates really everything. There's not really a lot of differences. There's not really a lot of differences between the Rambam and, and, well, the way it's formatted, the way it's structured is different. The order of how it starts, because he uses the order of the tour. The tour is another great work of halacha, which now can be found, of course, in 22 volumes, I think. There's a lot. We run through this very fast. But uh, the tour organized halacha not with the Rambam's format of 14 books in the order that he follows. Rather, it's four sections, uh, and the four sections and um, chapters within each one of those sections. The Shulchan Aruch is modeled after that format. That's why Shulchan Aruch, that it has Orachayim, Yorodei, Choshim, Mishpat, and Evan Ezer, which is the four sections of Shulchan Aruch, that is modeled after the tours, four sections of the tour. And so we, right now, we, uh, the Jewish nation is bound to, to the, Shulchan, the Shulchan Aruch. Now, that being said, Shulchan Aruch, um, there's commentaries written on it as well. And which is why we have an ever-growing. The Torah is, like we said, we start off our discussion way, way back. Torah is infinite. There's always more Torah there. Uh, and thus, the process of clarifying halacha doesn't stop. And certainly not in our, in our generation where we have new technologies and new realities and new foods and new experiences that weren't covered in, uh, in previous books. Someone told me a question recently. If you want to have Pas Yisrael, Pas Yisrael means Jewish bread. Halacha is that if you want to have, you want to eat bread, it has to be kosher, right? It has to have kosher ingredients. But it also has to be baked by a Jew. 
Okay, why? Because this was a this was a this was a uh, rabbinic ordinance because they didn't want uh, the Jews, non-Jews fraternizing. So they said, if if your neighbor bakes bread, neighbor's not Jewish, you can't eat that bread. But if your your neighbor happens to be a baker and he's not Jewish, well, that's fine because they're not worried about fraternization. Another law is the law of bishul akum, which means you can't eat food cooked by a non-Jew. Well, how do you avoid that? Every restaurant, every kosher restaurant has a bunch of non-Jews working, right? Well, the answer is all you got to do... The Jew lights the fire. Yeah, just the Jew the fire. That's why you avoid it. The way the rabbis made these enactments, but in ways that they're easily avoidable, but we should have a recognition of whatever they're trying to... whatever, whatever theme they're trying to, uh, to give over. So what about the bagel shop here? Bagel shop here. Someone has a question. Bagel shop, they have a huge oven that they do their bagels in, right? Who lights that oven? You have a Jew light the oven, right? But, Jew lights the oven, but they turn off the oven at 4 o'clock every day. They turn it on at 1 a.m. to make their new batch of bagels. So 4 p.m. the oven's off. 1 a.m. in the morning, oven turns on. Who turns on that oven? Yassi Grossman's not there in the middle of the night, right? Not that time, no. Whoever works there, right? Someone's a non-Jew. Yeah. So is that food, is, you know, is that, is, you know is, that, is that a problem? Well, how hot is the oven? Oh. If the oven is still hot from 4 o'clock, that the Jew turned it on, that's right, well then, even though it's not hot enough to maybe make bagels, but still hot enough, it's as if it was never turned off. Well, but how, how, how hot is that? That's a question that someone told me about this week. Is it, does that be 110 degrees, 107 degrees, 175 degrees? All these interesting questions. Like, that was a question that no one would even imagine a thousand years ago. Just above room temperature. So, Papa, right. what about Randall's? Randall's, they keep the oven on the whole time. Randall's, they never turn off the oven. The oven is never turned off. Randall's is no problem. The oven is never turned off. It doesn't matter, but the guy who decides is like, oh, pff, Randall's a public trade company. I don't care what that happens to their ovens. All our rabbis are in agreement with that. The New York one. Yeah, with the New York bagels, the whole question is, it, is you, know, it, you know, it's still kosher. The question is, does it have that same, you know. Three brothers also. Three brothers is not Pasi Stral. It's not. It's not, it's not lit. Uh, the fire is not, uh, it's still kosher. Either way, but these, these are examples of halacha questions that are, that, that are ap- applicable today that, you know, the Rama would have never dreamed that people would even ask. Um, and it, we, we, there's always fertile ground for halacha, either clarification, make it simple, uh, Write in English. You know, the Ram did not write in English. He wrote in Arabic, he wrote in Hebrew, not in English. Okay, what about today? People don't read Hebrew necessarily. You know how many books that were written in the past 50 years of halacha in English, specifically because it's just written in English to make people understand it? There's always room for more development in Torah. Okay, guys, this is the 